This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. November 17th, 2022, the SBF FTX WTF edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. John Dickerson of CBS Primetime is with us in New York as ever. Hello, John. Hello, David. I gave your title a hearty chuckle. Thank you. And not chuckling, dourly staring down is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Not dourly. Not dourly. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. Just, you know, looking up some good, fresh cocktail chatter. This week on the GabFest, Donald Trump announces his 2024 campaign for president. Then a lot of us, like me, took solace in the fact that so many election deniers lost last week. Why did that happen? What does it portend for American democracy? Then the collapse of Sam Bankman-Fried's crypto empire. We will talk to Matt Zeitlin of Grid about it and what it means for the effective altruism movement, the very interesting effective altruism movement. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And listeners, it is conundrum time. Please send us your conundrums for our annual GabFest conundrum show. Go to slate.com slash conundrums. We would love some amazing ones. Uh, like if you were going to spend a billion dollars to do the best thing you could do for the world over the long term, but that billion dollars didn't really exist and was in crypto, what would you spend it on? Um, or if you were trying to hide an elephant, how would you do it? What's a favorite conundrum of yours from years past, John? There was a period where we we had some kind of really dark ones, the old throw a switch you know, Hitler's baby ones, those I don't like. So that's not an answer to your question. Hitler had no baby. I can't remember what... Uh, Would you rather be a dragon or have a dragon? That's a good one. Anyway, slate.com slash conundrums. Submit yours. You have better ones than we do. Can't wait to talk about them. In a rambling and pretty dull announcement at Mar-a-Lago on Tuesday, Donald Trump declared that he is running for president in 2024. Together, we will be taking on the most corrupt forces and entrenched interests imaginable. Our country is in a horrible state. We're in grave trouble. This is not a task for a politician or a conventional candidate. This is a task for a great movement that embodies the courage, confidence, and the spirit of the American people. This is a movement. This is not for any one individual. He announced this early over the wishes of basically everyone, Republican at least, on the planet, who wanted him to stay out of sight until after the Georgia Senate runoff in early December. With the mendacity and nastiness and self-pity that characterizes Trump, he took credit for various things he did not deserve credit for, blamed Biden and Democrats for problems they do not deserve blame for, and uh, felt really sorry for himself. Emily, there is a sense with Trump that he is at once the dominant player in the Republican party and yet also somehow done. How can both of those things be true? He's the dominant player because so many Republican voters are loyal to him and there's no sign of peeling them away. But it also seems like he's done because his obsessions um, helped the party, uh, underperform expectations in the midterm. And I think this focus on his 2020 grievances is like the central tenet of who he is and his performance as president as being what should be front and central, you know, all his enemies, all his whipping children. It just is not a good it's I think the the party leaders more and more conclude that this is going to be a huge liability going forward. It's so past focused, right? I mean, that just seems itself like a problem. Is that John, do you think that's part of what's happening here? Yes and no. Yes, he feels very much like a man of the past. Yes, Republicans would like to frame him as a man of the past because that allows them to sort their ultimate break with him into a traditional structure, which is a part of the larger goal for a lot of Republicans who enabled him, sucked up to him, rose in their own lives as a result of the world he created, but they don't want to wrestle with all of those um, climb downs of their own personal character. 
they would like to just relegate him. Oh, he's yesterday's man. Now we're going to move on because we relegate, you know, politics is forward looking, not in the past. We're we're ready for the new world, not the past. That's like that makes him sound like he's any old political figure and not a person who they supported despite essentially trying to destroy the presidency and the Constitution. Um, and so, so I think it is absolutely true that he feels like yesterday's man, but, but I think it's crucial not to avoid the reckoning. And I'm not suggesting at all, this is what you're doing in framing it that way, Emily, but not to avoid the reckoning of what happened when an entire political party decided that all of the rules of the presidency and the American constitution were malleable, like a balloon animal for the maintenance of power. And essentially he became a loser once he became a loser. In other words, if he were still a winner, all those excuses would still be in play now that he picked some bad candidates. And we should talk about what that means because people voted for those candidates. So suddenly Donald Trump's getting blamed for them. But what about all the voters who picked all those prim- candidates in primaries? Are they? Are you essentially saying that they don't can't think for themselves? And that's a weird position to be in. Uh, as a Republican Party. But, you know, in some sense, John, listening to you, I mean, of course, I think that reckoning is really important. And it strikes me that the focus on Trump means that the Republican Party is sort of wallowing in us talking about that reckoning, right? Like if they moved on from him, they could slip the noose of some of that discussion being front and center. And instead, that's the problem with Trump. Like he forces them right back into it. Well, or his last great act to the Republican Party may be as a sink for all of the embarrassment, those who traded away their character and their belief in the norms of a functioning constitutional republic. They can just basically say, oh, well, we're done with Donald Trump and we're moving on and put make him basically the scapegoat for for the losses, for the era of Trump. Um and not have to wrestle with their role in that era. Um, I think, as you quite rightly point out, he's not going to go gently into that good Mar-a-Lago. Um, I mean, he has, and 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 I think that there's probably some great um, character from literature of the, you know, the wounded dying giant um, who nevertheless um, sweeps his paw across the land and takes out a lot of people. I have this fantasia that, Republicans are going to try to be nicer. I, I, I overvalue civility in politics, but it feels like to me the outsider position, the, the position, the, the space to seize in 2024 is happy warrior, not angry warrior, that that is where the Republicans are going to ultimately end up. I could be completely wrong. It could be that this, this kind of, this boiling, festering kind of, uh, pussy animus that has has animated so many of Trump's supporters persists. But I have this hope that maybe maybe that's a space that will be different and new. That's interesting. I mean, I think that would be a successful general election strategy. I have trouble imagining how someone makes it through the primaries with that, because the whole appeal is anger and loss of the culture wars and demonizing other groups, right? So, but is it? I mean, is that what that is? That well, what, tell me what it is. is otherwise, that what people, what's the well, lane? Th- I don't know that Brian Kemp in Georgia is is that's how he wins. I don't know that that's how people are winning in in every state. Camp one we is see like that a, a lot of people manager. who ran that way lost. This is the key question for the party. I think so. The happy warrior is sort of Jack Camp, Ronald Reagan. Um, who is that? The best I can come up with is and and is like Mike DeWine, who's not really even. And it, we should. It's interesting if you look at DeWine and and DeSantis, two huge winners in red states. DeWine won by more than DeSantis. And DeSantis is getting all the love. Why? Because he has that, you know, his whole anti-woke, this is the place woke comes to die. So even people like Senator Cassidy of Louisiana, who is trying to position himself as an ideas man in the Senate, says, you know, we've won with voters on the woke um, issue, which is, of course, him signaling sort of affirmation for DeSantis's approach. If you were truly an ideas guy, you would be on Mike DeWine's team because DeWine's not really doesn't lead with the culture wars. DeSantis very, very, very successfully did and is probably more 
If you wanted a pure winning strategy for Republican politics, you would line up behind DeWine, which I think is the answer to your question, David, about whether the party could switch to a to a happy warrior. What are the next six months of this non-campaign look like? Does it even matter that Trump is running? It's not like he's going to be hanging out in Iowa diners late on a Wednesday night. What does it even mean that he is now a candidate? I guess it means it means chaos. It means bad things possibly for the Georgia runoff. It means those other candidates who could have padded around in the shallow end probably have to step up. That's DeSantis, um, Youngkin, um, any of the senators who are thinking about running. Now, I, as I say that, maybe I'm totally wrong. Maybe you let him. Maybe you let him burn out and don't bother because you don't want to be the first one he attacks. I mean, I think the other thing that his, Trump's candidacy means is it complicates things for the Justice Department with all these investigations, and it means that Trump won't be fact checked on Facebook, for example. It has like that sort of ripple effect. Can I ask some questions about the um, challenge to McConnell's leadership, which I realize is a swerve, but I'm just really curious. I don't understand this Rick Scott challenge. Like, I don't get he's like the person who could be blamed for some of the losses in the midterm since he was in charge of the financing arm. Right. And like, why him? I don't understand this. Well, I think if you put your finger on something, a great point, which is kind of what we've been talking about, which is you. What is the theory of the case for the various groups of Republicans who would like to construct a post-Trump party? Scott made the point I was just making, which is when you say that this was these are bad candidates and it's poor candidate selection, which is undoubtedly true, you are saying something about the Republican voters. And if you're saying that the Republican voters in the primaries are so in Donald Trump's thrall that they picked these obviously awful candidates then the January 6th committee would like to thank you for submitting a brief on behalf of their argument, which is that Donald Trump's supporters are so in his thrall that when he says something, they storm the Capitol and that he's to blame for that. So if you're going to blame Trump for these bad candidates, then then the transitive property uh, follows of, uh, of January 6th. But anyway, that's a slightly obscure point. Back to yours, Emily, which is Scott was responsible for that. And his argument for beating McConnell was, well, we should have run on specifics. I don't think anybody would have argued that in um, given the economy as bad as it was and Biden's approval ratings as bad as they were, that you should talk about cutting Social Security while that's going on. I mean, it's pretty basic that you that you just let the other team have their bad record and let the the um, midterms be a referendum on them. The reason it wasn't in this case is because Donald Trump and abortion. And Scott is on the side of those things that most people think help Democrats survive in this last election. So it is a real head scratcher. And it's probably why he only got 10 votes in the in the uh, challenge to McConnell, which he lost. Emily, it feels like Fox may not be the useful megaphone, the useful trumpet for Trump that it was last time. If that continues, how important do you think that is for whether he can remain the front runner. I think it's really important. You also see some of the Rupert Murdoch owned print properties turning like the New York Post and the Wall Street Journal. The reason I think this is important goes back to John's question earlier about what Trump has on various Republican leaders and officials who try to turn away from him, which is my theory of Trump is that he is a classic bully. And the only way you defeat a bully is a united front. Everyone has to link arms and say no together, and then you can't pick them off one by one, which he's a total master at doing. So if you have the, you know, Fox, particularly, I think, Hannity and Tucker Carlson willing to separate themselves from him. Oh, and also that Fox and Friends show. Then he doesn't have easy ways to strike back that are getting to the meat of the voters, right? Like the place where they live. And that seems to me like... It could matter as part of the United Front if it emerges. Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the Gap Fest. And our bonus segment for Slate Plus is going to be a Thanksgiving one. You know how much we love Thanksgiving here at the Gap Fest. So we're going to talk about what Thanksgiving activity should be abolished or moved to a different time of the year. Candidates who built their campaigns around the idea that the 2020 election was stolen and that American elections are extremely corrupt, did so, so, so badly last week. Ha, huh, how satisfying. They ran well behind Republicans who didn't really talk about the 2020 election, and they lost almost all the key races they were in, especially 
the key secretary of state races and notably uh, mostly in Arizona and Michigan where these, there were a ton of folks like this. So um, Emily, you have been following this a ton. How much can we attribute these losses to the fact that candidates align themselves with, with focusing on the 2020 election and, and discrediting the American voting mechanisms? I mean, I think it's striking that they were running behind other Republicans. People were doing some ticket splitting to vote against them. And that seems significant to me in terms of a signal going forward about, you know, whether you really want to run for secretary of state by trying to say that the whole system is corrupt, because I think people understand, or at least enough Americans in key states seem to understand that if you put the election administration in the hands of someone who essentially has fallen for a conspiracy theory, that that is not going to do well by your state. So I think it's really important. And in some ways, I found these down-ballot races, um, especially for Secretary of State, to be the most reassuring part of the returns because, you know, forget partisanship here. There just should be this basic commitment to the functioning of democracy, and people who were disavowing that and threatening that seem to pay a price. And also not to elect people who are just daffy. Yes. (laughs) Because it was not just that it was not just that they were saying, uh, you know, elect me to be um, the wolf in charge of the chicken coop. But like the the, the ability to reason, I mean, some of it was shrewd calculation, but some of them were just some of them were witless. Does this mean, John, that election subversion is no longer a threat? No, I think that one of the things that will be worth watching in the if there is a post Donald Trump era is is what and how much you're allowed to flirt with these ideas um, for the purposes of helping yourself. Um, I think it's it seems what Emily said is right, which is that um, saying that the election is rigged turns out to be a turnout mechanism for Democrats and suppresses the vote for the conspiracy theorists because some people at some level decide, well, it doesn't I would vote for the for the Republican here, but it's all rigged, so I'm not going to show up. So that seems to have been shooting oneself in the foot. But the but the the ability to raise money and get a crowd to roar by saying that the other side is uh, full of um, illegal immigrants who are somehow getting on the rolls and full of people who aren't like us who are sneaking on the rolls and all of that, um, that incentive is still very much there. Um, I mean, we shouldn't forget that Ron DeSantis, who is defining perhaps the post-Trump era um, has used that effectively and that this has been a, that the, the idea of going after uh, voter fraud has been a, a part of the playbook at one amplitude or another for a very long time. And no doubt will continue to be, um, although being only that seems to be uh, not successful. I mean, it's also important to watch the space for Moore versus Harper, which is the Supreme Court case, um, which will be argued on December 7th and presumably decided in June. That's about, you know, this theory of independent state legislatures being the only entities that should, in the view of um, some people, I think, bent on election subversion, being the only entity that can regulate elections, um, especially federal elections. That would be a huge shift in American law. The other thing is we're not quite done with Maricopa County yet. I mean, Carrie Lake, I don't think as of our taping, has conceded and there's some lawsuit brewing there. What interests me about that situation is that Trump didn't dive into the middle of it, right? I mean, if he had gone there the day after the election and started beating the drum for, you know, this election was stolen from Lake, that could have really gotten some media attention at least and seemed more threatening. He doesn't and he, care. It's he doesn't not care. Him. Exactly. He doesn't care. It's he's this is his narcissism, just um super evident, but in this case, usefully so. Why do you think there hasn't been litigation? There was so much litigation in 2020, and all these folks were saying, you know, hinting or they wouldn't accept results, they wouldn't accept results. And yet so far, except for this ambiguous situation around Lake uh, the losers have not have not challenged the results. Well, I think unless you have Trump really feeding this, it turns out that, look, I mean, to make out a credible lawsuit, you're supposed to be able to show that there was some 
evidence of fraud that was great enough to have determined the result. A lot of these results were not actually very close. And so that's important in itself, right? That you just don't have the number of votes in play that could plausibly change the outcome. And then I think you have these candidates who actually, like, in the end, were shying away from this, I, this you know, door that Trump had opened with the, with the exception of Lake, because there is going to be some litigation in Maricopa County. John, how much do you think the the candidate choice and the focus on uh, election subversion or a focus on election denying was MAGA echo chamber stupidity, where the where conservative media just amplified something people thought it it really it really was a winning issue, and they just didn't they just didn't listen to all the people outside of their echo chamber who who were being skeptical and therefore they made a kind of a huge just a huge mistake where they if they had just run regular candidates they would have done so much better it's a really really interesting question to which i don't have a clear answer i mean you had basically uh i think as jonathan chait put it there were two positions one was the election was stolen and the, these are two positions that Republican candidates took. The election was stolen. And when they were asked about the election, the response would be. Rum, 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 rum. So so that instead of doing the honorable thing and the lowest possible bar you could clear, which is to say that the American institution of elections operated fairly uh, and that Joe Biden is the duly elected president, because that's a system in which you hope to succeed because you're running for office and that a system that gives people power based on the trust in elections can't function when you're constantly pouring poison into that system. Nevertheless, some people refuse to clear that very low bar um, for honorable behavior in public life. So um, that is still is kind of astonishing uh, to me. I have another part of this theory, which is I think there was just a lot of energy and um, friction around this. So if you were within the Republican Party, the people who were showing up and trying to throw the bastards out and seemed like... They cared a great deal, right? And so in that moment of the primaries or the internal party dynamics of who the local people were going to be pulling the strings, that just generated a lot of heat. And so those candidates seemed like they were exciting, even if they really didn't have a prayer of winning in a general election. So I'm thinking of that, I thought, really excellent This American Life episode that Zoe Chase and Isaac Arnsdorf did about Arizona and um, control of the local organs of the Republican Party there. And why bum out people who are so energized if you don't have to, which is what leads to the to the mumbling? And also, there was a huge other set of issues that that Republicans not wrongly <laughs> thought would be more important. And that is the, you know, the economy and inflation um, uh, and crime in some places. And basically, if you don't antagonize your own side by needlessly poking the Donald Trump supporters who think the election was stolen, and you can stay quiet on that, then you can allow these other issues to rampage, which are going to lead all of you to success. And that's that also seems probably to have been a, a in the end, they were wrong, <laughs> but um, they weren't. That wasn't a crazy place to be in if you're a Republican politician. Morally, uh, you already know my position, but as a just a sheer political move, probably the smart place to be. It's important to remember that there are still some election challenges, election related challenges going on in the courts that could have legs. So in Pennsylvania, there are all these questions about counting absentee ballots, which the state Supreme Court ended up taking a pretty narrow view of, you know, this idea that if there are technical glitches on your envelope or your ballot, they're not going to get counted. Um, as I understand it, there's much less opportunity to cure the ballot than there is in some other states, even, for example, in Georgia. That's just it seems narrow, but, you know, in a very close election, it could matter a great deal. Similarly, the fight over drop boxes in Wisconsin is um, something that could still affect the 2024 election. And when you look at the lawyers who are litigating some of those cases, they're more uh, traditional Republicans. So you see Don McGahn involved in this, the law firm Jones Day. That's been a kind of adjacent lane to the really like bananas stuff that was happening. And and I we're going to absolutely continue to see that. As you know, GabFest listeners, we now do a bonus episode every month called GabFest Reads, where one of us 
reads a book that we're excited about and talks to the author. And this month, on November 19th, this weekend, we have such an exciting GapFest reads. What is it, Dr. Emily Bazelon, J.D.? It is my friend Beverly Gage's book, G-Man, which is this amazing monumental biography of J. Edgar Hoover that Bev has been working on for so long. And that is um, just a both really strong narrative and also a fascinating portrayal of um, much of 20th century American history. Um, I'm going to brag one more brag for Bev, which is she's gotten excellent reviews in The New Yorker and The Washington Post. And I had such a great time. I'm talking with her about this book. I got a notice that I had a package yesterday and I was like, oh, it's my pre-ordered G-Man. And it was not. It, oh. it, was, it was kitty litter. <laughs> <laughs> not to be I have the feeling that this is, um, was it Ronald Steele who wrote that great book about um, Walter Lippmann? Um, I think it was. Anyway, you saw the entire 20th century through Walter Lippmann. And I feel like this book is going to be like that. It is really, it is a really wonderful book. I think it does serve that function. Listen to GabFest Reads this weekend in your GabFest feed. Emily had to step out for this next segment, but she will be back for Cocktail Chatter. The saga of Sam Bankman-Fried, the tycoon and would-be philanthropist whose crypto companies FTX and Alameda Research exploded and went bankrupt is absolutely enthralling across a bunch of levels. First is a fascinating story about about the fragility of the crypto economy, whether the entire crypto ecosystem is built on sand. Second, it's a drama about regulation and whether government can successfully regulate an industry that's so chaotic and untethered to actual place. Third, Bankman-Fried, SBF, was a huge Democratic donor and was promising to give a lot more, and his vaporization will have repercussions for American politics. And fourth, and maybe most interestingly, SBF was the public face or a public face of the effective altruism movement, which, to oversimplify it terribly, kind of encompasses two ideas. First, that people should seek to earn enormous amounts of money by whatever means they can so they can apply it to solve the world's problems. And second, at least in the in the kind of school of thought that SBF represents, they should focus on solving long-term problems, big long-term problems. So we're talking today to Matt Zeitlin of Grid, who has written really interestingly about what could happen to effective altruism amid the wreckage of SBF's empire. Hello, Matt. Welcome to the GabFest. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's start. What is effective altruism? What kind of problems was SBF and the people he was funding trying to solve? So Sam Bankman-Fried is an interesting figure because he represents a lot of, of, he's kind of a stand-in for a lot of what's happened to the movement recently, where there's kind of these two big ideas one you could kind of call it EA 1.0, and one you call it EA 2.0. Very webby of you to use those terms. Yeah, these are my terms, but I think they're appropriate. Um, I would say kind of the first wave of effective altruism, which kind of starts in the mid two, mid-2000s, early 2010s, uh, is this idea that, you know, um, charitable giving should be larger and more optimized. Um and that people with large incomes in the Western world could make the world a lot better place by even giving a small, like even 10% of them every year to maximally effective charities. And this oftentimes cashed out in things like direct aid to very poor people, especially in Sub-Saharan Africa, and public health projects, uh, like distributing bed nets um, to prevent malaria and like deworming medication, often again in Sub-Saharan Africa. What happens, though, in the late 2000s and 2010s is that some people in this movement become convinced by some philosophers at Oxford that if you if you that this basic framework is correct, donating is good, impact is important, but that the actual biggest problems in the world are things that could risk human extinction. And this oftentimes plays out in two ways. One is uncontrolled pandemics, often through some kind of malicious uh, bioengineering is something they've been very worried about for a long time. And the second is uh, runaway artificial intelligence, where artificial intelligence becomes so smart and so capable, it starts reproducing itself rapidly. And because it's not properly aligned, uh, as a kind of term of art they use, it can destroy the entire world. Um, And what's interesting is that many people in the movement started out as the first type and now are the second type. Do you think that EA is damaged by SBF's screw-ups. I'm just going to only use acronyms today. 
I would say it's damaged in two ways. One is the most obvious, a huge pot of money they were counting on. SBF at some point started talking about he was going to start donating $1 billion a year to philanthropic projects. And it seems like in the last year or so, he had donated over $100 million. Like, that's just gone. That's a pot of money that no longer exists. Um, this spring, Will McCaskill, who is uh, an advisor at, F- at, the FTX Found- at the FTX Future Fund and a friend of Sam Bankman-Fried's and arguably the person who inspired him to embrace this earning-to-give philosophy, uh, he wrote a post uh, in this popular forum for EAs saying that the EA funding situation had radically changed this past spring because of the amount of money FTX was bringing into, into the pot. So that money is gone. And that's a huge issue. And people right now, and some of my reporting talked about this, are scrambling, trying to replace those funds, wondering what's going to happen, going to other EAs or slightly different philosophies and asking for the money, which may be unsuccessful. The second thing, which I think is kind of more interesting and more speculative, is that Sam Bankman-Fried is very explicit about how his attitude towards risk and reward governed how he operated financially, which we now know to kind of be the case and kind of the downside. And two, we're heavily influenced by EA ideas about the utility of money. So I would say intellectually, this is like, and people in the community are doing this, it's causing a huge rethinking about, you know, both kind of organizationally, what it means to have one person control so much money in a given, you know, field. And two, I think some rethinking about these attitude towards maximization and optimization that he very much at least said he embraced and I think could be tied um, to his downfall. And, and just to, to flesh that a little bit, I think what you're what you're getting as a sort of this the coin flip theory, like take risk, take risk, take risk, because each time you take this risk and you have this huge upside, if you can generate massive amounts of money, uh, that's the, the 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 upside good that you can do with that massive amount of money is enormous, and the law the potential loss is just you have, you know, all right, you're back to zero and you can restart. It's not a big deal, and and so like why why wait at a billion? Get to two. Why wait at two? Get to ten. Get to a hundred, and at each point you're increasing the amount of risk. And I guess I didn't see the consequences that vaporizing that money has on actual human beings and also actual people's trust in institutions and people's faith in that 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 things work and so if you actually it's not that we've lost 16 billion dollars it's that people have now have lost an enormous amount of trust in institutions faith in something and that is hugely destructive it's not just the loss of the money it's actually a destruction of something bigger than the money yeah, I think an important aspect here is that not only was Sam Bankman-Fried influenced by EA ideas, he's at its very heart like a trader, a financial trader. Um, the firm he worked at uh, right out of college when he kind of was embracing the earn-to-give philosophy is called Jane Street. And they don't make crazy one-directional bets on cryptocurrencies, like the stuff that they are alleged to have been doing and probably is what led to them losing all this money. But just they just have a very kind of traderistic attitude towards a risk and that like you just quantify things and kind of roll with it. And I think that's very much a, he took a version of that attitude to a very extreme, a very extreme place and was very, very open about it, which I think is interesting. I think I think what the EA community has to think about is like the big debate over Bankman Freed was like whether crypto was crypto trading, crypto exchanges were like bad for the world on their own, which I think is a very reasonable debate to have. I think the other thing is that, did they really understand the business he was in and the types of risks he was taking? Or they kind of think about this in a more, you know, theoretical way. And so I think that's a big question a lot of people are asking. And were there incentives to not poke and or think too clearly or closely about what he was actually doing, right? Because if the money's rolling in. I think in EA's defense, you know, like supposedly sophisticated investors and counterparties, like you know, they're the ones receiving the money. It's the people giving him money that should be more skeptical of what's going on. So that's, you know, the Sequoias of the world, the big VC firms, and the big investors that use this platform and, and borrowed money from him or lent him money. Um, but yeah, you know, it's just like, it's what happens when you take these ideas about risk too seriously, I think is a real question. How do you read um, Sam Bankman-Fried's interview uh, um, after the with Vox after all this went down and what he says about his um, altruism and how that might affect this whole movement? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's not he doesn't exactly say 
that EA was kind of a front for money making. I think he's more saying it's like good. It was good for him and to kind of have a good reputation, which I think is almost kind of axiomatically uh, the case. And I also, and, you know, again, this is like pure speculation, but like, I think it's oftentimes tempting when you're in a situation where you've kind of lost everything to kind of regain control over it and be like, you guys are the idiots for trusting me, which is not something he directly said, but kind of implies. And it's so, again, we're going to wait to see. And like his record of, of truth telling has been, you know, spotty to say the least. And to think just now he's, he's being super honest, I think would be kind of a, be a leap of faith, but uh, we'll see. Read Matthew Zeitlin's article in Grid about Sam Bankman-Fried and effective altruism. Matt, thanks so much for coming and talking about this with us. Thanks so much. I had a great time. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are being effectively altruistic and sharing a drink with somebody else, what are you going to be chattering about, John Dickerson? Well, the first thing is that viewers uh, who listen to this on Thursday should check out Friend of the Show, Stephen Colbert's um, celebrity pickleball show, Pickled, which is uh, airing on CBS on um, on uh, Thursday night at uh, nine o'clock Eastern, eleven o'clock Pacific. There's no. a celebrity pickleball show now. No, it's it's not, and it um, cannot be a joke because pickleball is taking over the world. Oh my god, it's totally taking over the world, and. Um, uh, and uh, from what I've seen of it, it is uh, très amusant. Um, so check that out. I'm sure it'll also be available on Paramount Plus after it airs on Thursday night. And all the money uh, that they raise for Pickled goes to uh, charity. So anyway, that's the one thing. The other thing I learned is that, did you know that Crossword Puzzle started, first of all, it was called Word Cross. And second of all, it was started, newspapers um, started them in uh, during the First World War to basically provide readers with something to keep them from being constantly bummed out by the war to end all wars, um, and which I didn't know, A. And B, it was kind of funny to think of crosswords, which are so much a part of our life, uh, as having their sort of wordle moment, you know, where everybody is going around saying, did you hear about this thing called word cross? No, it's called crossword. Which is it? Oh, my God, where do I find it? Um, and, you know, because I was uh, interested in crosswords because there was this new study that was done uh, about uh, help with um, it, what it can and can't do for your brain health um, relative to those computer games you're always being served on um, various things. And it turns out crosswords are, are, are better for your brain if you're trying to keep your brain agile into old age. Um, anyway, the other thing, this is a total hodgepodge chatter, but did you know that Mike Tyson is teaming up with Evander Holyfield to launch a line of cannabis? And he says, Tyson, who bit Holyfield's ear in 1997, as you may remember, said, if I was on cannabis, I wouldn't have bit his ear. Might be so, true. Yeah, could be true. Um, anyway. Pitch, I think, actually. That's, yeah, you're right. Okay, John well. definitely feels like he's at a cocktail party. He's very, he does. He's <laughs> just rolling along. And a shout out to Andrea, GabFest listener, uh, who said hello to me the other night um, in New York. Thanks for listening and to apparently your whole family that listens as well. Those are my, that, that's my hodgepodge. I'll shut up now. Emily, what's your chatter? My chatter is distressing. It's, <laughs> it's about a few recent rulings by a judge, a federal judge, a Trump appointee named David Counts in the Western District of Texas about a very broad Second Amendment right to bear arms that, in the view of this judge, precludes people who've been accused of domestic violence um, and other kinds of uh, serious allegations from having their guns taken from them. So uh, the latest example of this was someone who was under a protective order and uh, was found with a gun. This judge thinks that that person under the Second Amendment has the right to have a gun. He had also made a similar ruling about people who were um, being prosecuted but hadn't yet been convicted. And, you know, what you see here is this application of the Supreme Court's um, Second Amendment ruling last summer in Bruin, the New York case. It's like the next step. If you're and what Judge Count is saying is if we're supposed to look at the history and traditions of the United States for whether a gun regulation can stand, he's saying that he doesn't see anything about how in the past it looks like people accused or um, accused of domestic violence or under a protective order 
had their guns taken from them. He admitted he hadn't done a completely exhaustive search. I mean, this is a kind of uh, problematic part of the whole idea that judges are going to be well-equipped to do these kinds of deep dives into 18th and 19th century history. But, you know, in terms of a threat to public safety, all the things we would worry about in the modern world, people who have been accused of domestic violence and other things that lead to protective orders are not good bets to be carrying firearms in terms of risk, just real risk to people around them. And, you know, this is the implications of where the Supreme Court is going with the Second Amendment. My chatter, two things. First of all, uh, if you're in Washington, D.C. on November 30th, Wednesday, we're doing a live CityCast D.C. episode at Politics and Prose at Union Market. I'm going to be co-hosting it with Michael Schaefer, the host of CityCast D.C. So join us. It's going to be really fun. November 30th at 6.30 at Politics and Prose Union Market. You can meet the team behind CityCast learn a lot about DC. Uh, there are going to be drinks in the neighborhood afterwards. It's going to be really fun. Uh, I'd love to see you there at Politics and Prose on Union Market, November 30th. My actual chatter is about another crypto billionaire. I'm transfixed by another crypto billionaire, Michael Saylor. Michael Saylor is this uh, interesting character who founded a data mining company called MicroStrategy way, way back in the 90s, made a ton of money with it, lost a ton of money. He lost more money in a single day than any person in history in, in the early 2000s. He lost $6 billion when MicroStrategy had to restate some earnings. Um, and recently, he, he regained control of this company. The company was doing fine as this data mining company. He invested a huge percentage of the company in crypto. And so the company has now put billions of dollars of its assets into crypto and those four billion dollars have now shrunk to two billion dollars and that's very satisfying um but that's not why i'm interested i'm interested because michael saylor is a washingtonian he lives in washington he's bought a bunch of georgetown houses tied them all together and to create a single mega mansion he has a yacht that he he docks in dc and he has not been paying dc taxes for years and apparently bragging about it and now some whistleblowers have come along and said this is a guy who claims he lives in Florida. He's actually living in D.C. Here's the goods. Here's the evidence that he's been in D.C. for more than 180 days or 185 days, whatever it is, uh, in a given year. And um, he should pay his fair share of taxes. And he, he is being sued by D.C. There are tens of billions of dollars that he has not paid in D.C. taxes, according to these accusations. And it's just infuriating as a D.C resident and DC citizen to think that this guy might be eluding taxes. I hate tax cheatery. It's really infuriating. And I hope that Michael Saylor, if he is guilty, is forced to dis disgorge tons of money so that DC can build better schools and parks and roads and things like that. Listeners, you also chatter. You tweet chatter to us at Slate GabFest and you email them to us at GabFest at Slate.com. And our listener chatter today comes from Kelly Mills. Hi, GabFest. This is Kelly Mills coming to you from Columbia, South Carolina. The Woman Who Smashed Codes, a true story of love, spies, and the unlikely heroine who outwitted America's enemies, authored by journalist Jason Fagone, is the most compelling nonfiction book I have ever read. Dubbed NPR's best book of the year for 2017, the story of Elizabeth Smith Friedman, the mother of modern cryptography, does not disappoint in any arena. One look at the reviews will have you more than curious to learn about this heroine who sought no glory and in fact received very little due to the secret nature of her life's work. Give it a read or a listen. You won't regret it. All right. Sounds great. is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the big boss, the VP of audio of Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest. Tweet chatter to us there. And go to slate.com slash conundrums and give us some great conundrums to talk about. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you on Thanksgiving next week. Hello, Slate Plus 
How are you? I'm a Thanksgiving obsessive. It's as I've, we've been doing the show for so long. Anyone who's listened to the Gabfest over the years knows that I talk and think about Thanksgiving a lot. Uh, so just bear with us. We're going to do a slate plus about Thanksgiving in particular, what Thanksgiving traditions should be moved or eliminated. How can we fix or improve Thanksgiving? The perfect holiday. Can it be fixed or improved? I would like to t- take issue with the premise at its start. Why are we futzing with it? It's in good shape. I, it is. It is. I have so many, but I have so many ideas. All right, David, you start <laughs> us off because you okay. think it's so wonderful. So I'm amazed that I you know, can so... find things okay. to change. It is so wonderful. It's so wonderful. It's the perfect holiday. Okay. I think the way that I'm not Christian, but I, I think that Christmas Eve is great. I think there should be a Thanksgiving Eve tradition. Uh that should be that should be created and nationalized. I think there should be a like a Wednesday night. There should be Nash some big national concerts. Like that's the day that when if we're going to do parades, you do the parade on Thanksgiving Eve. Um, you do big sports events on Thanksgiving Eve, and then the the day itself is is itself and you can still have some sports on it whatever but that but that there's all this there's this revelry and festivity on thanksgiving eve how about that i like that although that is a suggestion in improvement not something to take away except i will um seize on your your point about the parade which is for me the parade is kind of like huh what yeah yeah um, take it now, away take that away here's take the it thing away. but here's the thing put it on wednesday and then um the football games, I think you want, because what happens is the tryptophan kicks in, and frankly, some of us are only enjoyable in small bursts of time. And so for those who need a refuge from me, uh, they can go watch the football game and kind of just melt into the couch and they're they're set. Um, so I think that should stay on the day. So, but why are you taking the parade away? Because I think the Football game is playing that really crucial role in many American households where people just need a break. But maybe the parade is playing that role for another set of households who need a break. When is the, the parade? Parade's anyway? in the morning, right? Parade's in the morning, in the morning though. Morning. Oh, it gets, it's, it's so time, maybe it's the time is all weird. Afternoon. It also creates an expectation for the parent who has to fulfill it for the kids, and the parents are trying to deal with the damn food. I also think I would add something, and I don't know where I don't know where I would add this. I'm holding my great idea, my best idea I'm going to hold for last. Uh, I am, I think there should be a kind of once, they, they, should, they should invent some new event that we should have either for Thanksgiving night or for, or for Thanksgiving Eve, which is just a huge cultural event or sports event. Like, like you do a $100 million mile run and the winner gets $100 million or you do like you do National Pickleball Day. National Pickleball Day. Wednesday. You do the grant. You do the Grammys or something like so that it, it is a, this occasion to gather and oh, John's John's in. I love that idea. No, I love like some cultural thing that that everybody the way that they used to do for Christmas like Bing Crosby's yes, Christmas yes, that every, yeah, people would sit around yeah. and watch. Right. Except given the way things are in our culture today, it would have to be like some special Game of Thrones thing. And then it would be lots of like disembowelings right before before your big meal. So maybe that wouldn't work as a national event. I mean, what could you find that would be multi-generational? That's such a key part of Thanksgiving. And I feel like anything that tried to appeal to young people then would leave out old people. And I mean, maybe that would be part of the fun of it would be the young people explaining it to the old people. But it's yeah, hard like to it might be a dance, a, a, like a single dance competition or something. People, everyone loves that dance could be or good. singing. Oh, I like the dance competition idea. All right, are you ready for the greatest idea? This is an actual, this is an actually- Can I just idea. say, before you unleash your great idea, I, I have focused on, because I couldn't think of one thing to take away, but apparently it's a tradition in some households to interrupt the person who's carving the turkey while they're carving the turkey. And I think I think that's a, a national tradition that we could do away with. Wow. All right. Oh, I wonder if you might have some self-interest at stake there. What if you're the person who comes over while someone's carving the turkey and just has to steal a little bit of stuffing and almost gets your finger cut off every oh, time? Mm, yeah. Interesting. Well, the stuffing, though, it happens in, an, in a different part of the workflow than the carving of the turkey. Well, no, because some people put the stuffing in the bird, which is a great way to do it. But then if you take it out, you threaten to cut my This is a major Thanksgiving subtweeting here. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I'm down with having with stuffing the, the bird with the stuffing. But then when you're going to carve it, don't you take the stuffing out? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm just talking about the the way in which I cause trouble at Thanksgiving. Oh, okay. Um, okay. You guys ready? Here we go. Bring it. Okay. One of the great pleasures of Thanksgiving, I think we can all agree, is the Thanksgiving walk. Oh, yes. 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 Okay. Here's the great idea. The Thanksgiving walk is at a designated time so that all, every family is going out. And so it's not just that your family's out. It's like this collective event. We're all out. We're all seeing each other. Maybe you dress up for it. It becomes like a thing that we're all doing together. I love that. Such a great idea. The only thing is, um, doesn't that mean that you all have to see each other? Yeah, but it's okay. There are a lot of places to walk <laughs> yeah. in America. Yeah. No, you do. You would. What see do we do more. about the time zones, David? Is it central? It's, it's, you do it for it, in oh, your yeah. time zone. And the problem is, then everyone has to eat at the same time, and that's a problem because people yeah. have different right. family traditions. But maybe, maybe it's like we designate there are two times. Like it's either at it's either at you know two o'clock or it's at five o'clock. Those are the only two times you're allowed to go for a walk. Do you go for a walk right out the door, or do you drive to go to your walk? Out the door. Out the door. You drive, it sounds like. Well, it depends on it depends on the situation, but yeah. I might might have to is the is the is the it depends if it's cold. When do you do it? Is it between after after the meal, but before the dessert? Us too. Yeah, I think that might be the only time you're allowed to do it. All right. This is very uh, everyone is now gonna deflate in their excitement for this episode. And we can cut this if necessary. What do we do about the origin story of Thanksgiving? Which is a problem. Just continue to ignore it blithely. My nephew has periodically read an essay uh, denouncing Thanksgiving at Thanksgiving, which, and then we all <laughs> enjoy Thanksgiving. That's a very Jewish Thanksgiving tradition. <laughs> I mean, I like that because it acknowledges, right? It's like a recognition of uh, of this history that is a problem. I think it's a problem. It seems intertwined. I'm not. I I mean, it's obviously a romanticized notion of colonial and Native American history. Um, But I'm also you can sort of pick origin stories that are. more patriotic and stirring, right? You can talk about like Lincoln declaring Thanksgiving as national unity. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that's where your safe space is. I like the essay though because it it it's it yeah it just is uh, facing straight on another aspect of Thanksgiving. All right, Slate Plus, have a great Thanksgiving. <laughs> 